0: Uh, it's very hard to put it in words, really, but I haven't been touring for a long time. And it's been a painful decision whether to come back on the road or not. And, uh, I'm really enjoying tonight, thank you very much. But, uh... I've made a decision tonight, this is going to be the last show. Alright?
1: So, uh, there's a lot more to me than playing on the ground. And this is uh, the last one I'm going to do. Oh. You, love what got
2: to do? Hello and welcome to episode four of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast and we're going back 40 years to the 3rd of November 1977 to look into the circumstances that uh, surrounded a very one-off gig that happened that night. It's uh, it's notable, that gig, for being the only gig that Elton John did with the band that he put together for that show. And it's also one of the few times in uh, rock and roll that a band were fired live on stage without anyone apart from the band leader knowing in advance. I mean, I'm sure it's happened a few times, but this is one of the documented moments where it happened. You just heard that at the top of the show. So... To see how Elton came to make this rather monumental decision, we need to go back about a year um, to the last gig that the full Elton John band had done. They just finished up a seven-night stretch at the Madison Square Garden on the 17th of August 1976 and if you're much of a fan of this era you'll know there's not many particularly good recordings of that band that we can hear Um, so this is about as good as I can find. Here's, Here's a recording of them tearing through empty sky at Madison Square Gardens on the 15th. There weren't any songs from Blue Moves in the set at that time because that album would come out in October 76 and although Elton has played songs from forthcoming albums quite a few times that wasn't one of the times he did so but by the time Blue Moves had come out the band that recorded it had broken up. So I think this is as good an opportunity as any for us to have a think about why that 1975-76 band broke up. There was, in the most part, a massive amount of pressure on Elton to tour and record, to tour and record, to tour and record. Um, I've got a recording of an interview where he talks about quite a few of these things. Here he is talking about that period... Um, during an interview which happened on the 7th of November, so four days after the Wembley Pool gig that we're talking about tonight. Here he is talking to Michael Douglas in New York. Uh, we stopped,
0: I stopped touring in 1976 at the Madison Square Garden concerts because there was a feeling inside of me that says, hold on a minute, am I getting a little mechanical? I didn't think I was, but I, it wasn't um, a clinical and a, a sort of calculated opinion as far as a brain work goes it was a feeling in the stomach you know when you get stomach feelings it's an instinct thing yep. and i thought hold on a minute i've been doing this for seven years i've got to take a little break um i've got to devote some attention some energy to some, some other things um so that i can get my enthusiasm i felt my enthusiasm for it might be waning um so i stopped and I, hopefully i'm going to come back again next year with a band i have no set plans but i know i'll do something my interest is now sort of getting alive again as far as recording and and playing to the public again. I also read that you were thinking seriously of uh, playing more intimate clubs. Absolutely. I did a tour of England uh, and I played small halls because that's the only sort of halls you can play (laughs) in England. And I liked it. I, I got a little fed up. I played Pontiac Stadium Detroit and I saw these faces squashed up against the sort of barriers and I thought, this isn't what I started out wanting to do, it's all very ego, it's a great ego trip seeing 60, 70,000 people uh, to see you, and it's great fun, I don't deny it. But somewhere along the way, I think um, rock and roll has lost its path in the fact that it's become so big, it's become such a big machine, the record company's taken over, uh, and I have helped contributed to that, so now I have to really go back and uh, do what I feel artistically is best for me, and I really would like to play the Carnegie Hall or somewhere like that when I come back.
2: Caleb, in uh, the Keith Haywood book, has got something to say about this. Uh, during the recording of Rock of the Westies in Blue Moves, this is what he says. This is when a lot of industry pressure was beginning to cave in on Elton. I remember we were in the middle of recording and we heard a helicopter turn up. The recording was interrupted for some attorneys who'd brought out some contracts for us to sign for the tour following the album. But it meant our creative zone was suddenly interrupted. It struck me at that point that we were in the middle of a machine and it was getting out of control. Here's Elton talking about that sort of thing as well.
0: Did you know Elvis? Uh, I met Elvis for two minutes um, uh, when I played Washington in 1976. Uh, That's the only time I've met him. What was your know. impression of him in those two minutes? I you thought know. he looked extremely ill, and I felt very sorry for him then. I thought, my God, I hope I don't, and I don't mean this insulting me. I hope this never happens to me. What do you think really happened to him? Do you think he was into drugs or what? Do you believe what you read about the, the autopsy? And I, you know? I don't think I can believe anything that I read because I don't know what is the truth. I, I'm not really in a position to judge what happened to him. Um, I just think it's tragic what, what did happen to him because I still think he was a, a tremendous talent. He had the best voice. And it's obviously surrounded by the wrong people, I would put it down to. Having seen people in other similar situations sort of go the same way, um, I would say it's all down to the people around you and the way they lead you and the way they pick off you and the way they, they suck the energy out of you and tell you you're wonderful and everything. And they just, yeah. they just the entourage, take the everything out. creative out of you, all the um, energy, out of you, and they, eventually you just do nothing. and It's that's, that's terribly sad, but I would probably blame it on the people surrounding me. Do you have that kind of an entourage around you? I have, have you in the past. Oh yeah, I've had bodyguards and things like that on tour, and I got a little fed up with it because, you know, um, it was very hard to reach me. You had to go sort of via, oh, so many people to get a phone call to me, and this has happened to you some don't of my You do have to tell me, Elton. I know, uh, I know. <laughs> uh, I, how'd, you, how'd you end that? You can't, really. It always happens. I mean, it will always happen. I've created the monster that it is me, pardon the expression, um, and I have to live with it and deal with it, and I don't feel guilty about it. um.
2: Of course, at this time, alcohol abuse and drug abuse was becoming a big factor in the band. Roger Pope, uh, the drummer at the time, said that the hard this is what he says, the hard drugs really started during the Captain Fantastic period. Presumably he means coke, but who knows? He says, Elton was really going for it at that time, especially when we were in Amsterdam. That would be uh, actually summer 75, that point when they were rehearsing for the Wembley Stadium gig um, in support of Captain Fantastic. I think the way that the two albums from that era were received in the press um, in particular would have hit Elton and he would have responded by retreating and I think on top of everything was the fact that his working and his personal relationship with John Reed was breaking down if not completely broken down and I don't think this can really be underplayed he had himself a massive breakdown before the huge Dodger Stadium gig and I think his personal life was a big part of that let's have a listen to him talking in the interview about this area there's a quote of yours that intrigues
0: me lonely at the top can you explain um, it?
2: well it is lonely
0: really um there's so few of us there uh <laughs> well i can't really explain it uh, what did you mean when it's you my said alf- well you see i'm a i'm a loner i've disk i've just really in the last year or so discovered that i don't think um I could possibly live with anyone anymore um, I'm so selfish uh, and, and self-centered to the point where not nastily, I don't think but you know if I live with somebody and I have lived with people and I get really picky about the way they wash the cups up and things like that I'm, I'm pretty intolerant of things like that and I, I've sort of for the moment accepted that um, I'm a loner I don't mind I'm, I'm beginning to enjoy it there was a period for two or three years where it made me really miserable but I think I've come to grips with it, and uh, if that's the way it is, then that's the way it is. Isn't it funny? I would never have thought that you were a loner. No, I mean, I've got loads of friends, oh, but I I mean as far
2: as my own uh, personal life uh, goes, then I'm a loner. A part of the process of Elton regaining his independence and his sense of a private life, ironically, was the interview that he gave in October of 1976 with Rolling Stone, where he came out as bisexual. I think it's worth mentioning that it would have been completely against the advice of John Reed that he did that. And this is what he has to say about that in the interview from November 77.
0: I must ask you about this, because a while back you admitted to being bisexual. Yeah, what ramifications came from that? I mean, what, what came from that? What came from it? Well, I find that when I was driving around London, I got far more waves from taxi drivers and lorry drivers than I'd ever had before. (laughs) Um, So um, I had another, you know, I Why should you be so open? Why should you? Why should Elton John? Well, I think most people in the industry knew it anyway. So I mean- What what brought that about though? Why should you tell- Well, nobody ever asked me before, really. And this guy from Rolling Stone, Cliff Jarre, he was very nice and just came out and uh, and asked asked a question. How did he ask you? Well, he said, he was very nice, he said, "I'm if you want me to, after you answer this question, I shall erase the tape and you've got a complete control, which is very nice. And he just said, are you bisexual?" I said, well, yes. Weren't you afraid it would damage your, your position in popular music to say something like that? Has I it think, indeed? I think if you've got um, your own interests uh, at heart too much like that, if you're you know, going to think, well, uh, my career, my career, my career, what's going to happen? Then I think you should get out of the business anyway because you get so obsessed with yourself. No, it was a perfectly honest answer to an honest question. I'm glad I said it. You've um, got your act together. Well, I, wanna... I
2: mean, it, well, it's so, you a know, big deal. Just as an aside here in the Keith Haywood book, there is uh, talk of Elton falling in love with a Toronto-based ice hockey player during the, uh, the during the dedicated sessions for Blue Moves. Uh, and that was March 1976. He bought the guy a Porsche, apparently. So... There's a lot of factors here, um, not even taking into account the personal factors within the band. I've mentioned that in the second episode, I think. The the need for personnel changes after Kenny Passarelli's um, involvement, not so much in the breakdown of Bernie's marriage, but certainly involvement in Bernie's life. So Elton essentially retired at that time from ...live performance from doing big shows at least... ...he also stopped recording for a while... ...just took a break... Um, ...I think he spent some time on holiday... ...I think richly deserved... Uh, ...the next move from Elton... ...and John Reed was strongly encouraging him... ...to get back out there... ...the next move in, in advance of the uh, Blue Moose album being released... ...he did some smallish solo shows... In October of 76, he did a televised show at the Edinburgh Playhouse. And this was directly in support of the release of Blue Moves, um, which came out in October. He played a couple of songs from the album. He played Tonight and he played Someone Saved My Life Tonight. He looks really tired in this performance. He's got no hat, he's got no wig or weave yet. Uh, It is a very honest looking Elton and uh, it must have been a bit of a shock for the people watching it on TV at home because it was televised, to see him looking like this. Um, here he is as he comes on stage and pours himself a drink from a large jug.
1: Let me pop.
0: I don't want people at home on TV to think that I am an alcoholic. I want them to know that I'm an alcoholic. Right, tonight uh, I feel a bit lost because I've, I've only ever done one, one or two of these things before and it's usually been be- before an absolutely alcoholically uh, pissed audience. Uh, so if, if I forget any of the words, it's absolutely due to the fact that I'm so nervous that uh, but I'm sure everything will go all right. Anyway, we're going to do...
2: Five minutes of TV and I haven't sung anything yet. Here we are Many a true word. Um, Elton performs really well in this show. Uh, he's never someone to mess up a big night, is he? Um, and I imagine there would have been a heavy dose of drama involved in the build-up to this show. Let's have a listen to the introduction to Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word, where Elton talks about the stresses he is under and about his choice to get off the treadmill.
0: We're going to do a song, we're going to do, see that's Habit. Me and the piano are going to do a song for someone, a a lady who came all the way up from London. uh, And uh, she's a blind lady called Catherine. I'm delighted to dedicate this next song to her because I think that's incredible. We'll come all the way out from London and be so loyal. Well done. And uh, <laughs> uh, you do tend to get—I uh, made a statement in the press or in the Melody Maker. <laughs> sorry, no, I mean, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, saying about you know you do lose touch about things and you do—I mean for someone to come from London when you think about it. Uh, to take all that trouble is incredible. And uh, you sometimes take it for granted. And this is a thing that can get carried away with us, mega stars, as they call us. And that's one of the reasons why I think uh, a lot of us need bringing it down to earth and coming back off the road, as it were, to reevaluate things. Because you do, know, yeah, I said to the Melon Maker this week, it needs four phone calls to get even close to me. And uh, that's sort of infuriating sometimes. And uh, so Catherine, you did a really nice job for coming up for me. Anyway, that's very important. I'm not bloody well giving you the feel to go back there. (laughs) No, serious, this is a new song uh, from the new album and it's called Sorry Seems To Be The Hardest Word. All right. It's not a twist number.
2: The song Sorry seems to be the hardest word is an interesting one. I think most people assume that Bernie wrote about it uh, regarding the situation with his wife. But there is some comment on the internet that Elton wrote the majority of the lyrics to this song and that Bernie and he collaborated directly to finish it, i.e. in the same room as one another. I can't find the original source for his claim, but there is a quote attached to this. It says, it's this. I was sitting there, said Elton, and out it came. What have I got to do to make you love me? Um, Bernie's spoken about this song a little bit. He's said that he wrote the title and he said that he wrote the first few lines of the verse, so he contradicts Elton there. But if Elton did write the verse, and I think he did write it, and if he did direct the sentiment of the song, then who is this song directed to? There seems to me to be only really one candidate for that. It's also really fascinating that his resignation from the road, which we heard at the top of the show, was delivered just before he played. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. He was giving a message to John Reed rather than to the band, although it was a bit of a shock to the band, as we'll talk about later. So, during his break from the Elton John Band, Davey got together with some other Elton John Band acolytes and formed a band and called it China. And they consisted of Davey on guitars and vocals, James Newton Howard on keyboards and piano, Roger Pope on drums, Cooker Presty, what a crazy name, on bass. Uh, Lopresti, he played for Melissa Manchester. He wrote some songs with her. Elton produced the album. And he and Kiki did some backing vocals. It sounds especially with the first track of the album, that it's Elton on piano. But according to Roger Pope's wife, she put a comment up on YouTube on one of the videos of the China songs from this album. She said that he didn't play, that it was James Newton Howard that played. It was recorded by Elton at Musicland in Munich. And by that time, I think Gus had bought the mill at Cookham, but Stuart Ebbs was busy setting it up, getting the big, thick, heavy carpet in and so on. China released a single and an album, both of which came out on Rocket Records. The music it's upbeat, I would say, proggy. Uh, there are some moments where they do sound quite a lot like the 1976 Elton John Band, and it's hardly surprising. Um, there are some really dense passages of musical exposition But it all sounds a little bit studied to me. It's lacking in emotional involvement. Let's have a listen to one of the songs. This is One Way Ticket. involved he helped with some songwriting he wrote the lyrics to the songs Broken Woman and Savage let's have a listen to one of those let's have a listen to Broken Woman effect on those vocals. It sounds almost like they're recorded backwards, anyway. So, by this stage, Elton was only doing charity gigs and one of those was booked at the Wembley Pool in support of the Royal Variety Club and the Gold Diggers charity that Elton had become involved with a few years before. The Wembley Pool gig was the only time that the Gold Diggers song, um, which Elton released in 77, was played live we're not going to listen to that today. We'll save that for another podcast, I think. So this is the band that Elton John put together and they rehearsed at Shepperton Studios. At least we know they did on the 1st of November 1977 because there's a picture of it um, available on the internet. And the band with Elton, James Newton Howard, Davy. we still have Cooker Low, Presty on bass, but Dennis Conway's coming on drums um, because Roger Pope had joined Hall & Oates by that time we've also got Joe Partridge from the Kiki D band um, on rhythm guitar Ray Cooper's there on percussion there's a familiar name in the backing vocals, that's Gary Osborne alongside a couple of others Stevie Lang and Chris Thompson and another familiar name Kiki D Gary Osborne's interviewed about this night in the Keith Haywood book this is what he's got to say Elton was enjoying it so much that he did say to me at one point, I'm going to announce the end of my retirement during the concert. He also asked me, Chris and Stevie if we would go out on the road with him. I thought, fuck me, would I like to go out on the road with Elton John? I was on cloud nine. Well, let's listen to that band on cloud nine kicking into One Horse Town. She's What the band didn't know at this time was that Elton had had a proper meltdown in his dressing room. Osborne learned about it later and this is what he's got to say about it. Before the show, he was in a foul mood. I can't remember what it was about, but something happened backstage. He started ripping up the place and kicking around the flowers that had been sent to him. He kicked one of them, a big floral display, and it did a cartwheel and landed face down in an amusing way. Elton had a wonderful sense of humour, even when he was in a rage. In the midst of his fury, he had to ask his PA, Bob Halley, whose bouquet he'd kicked. It turned out to be the one that Bob himself had sent. Elton loved that. Don't know what Bob thought. Um, So, this show was a pretty long show, two hours, not as long as the uh, 1976 shows, which sometimes headed towards three hours. It's notable for a couple of guests. Firstly, we've got Kiki doing her thing on Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Hardly a surprise, but let's have a little listen to that, shall we? sad to hear the band and the backing vocalists working so hard but knowing that they only just found out that there would be no tour and that this little episode was coming to an end this is what uh, Gary has to say about that announcement from Elton he says the show is going on and I'm standing there and absolutely loving it 10,000 people were going crazy and I was singing some great songs I was waiting for the announcement that Elton was about to make his comeback and go back on the road, and that we were the guys that he would be touring with. But then he said exactly the opposite: "I'm never going to perform again," and I couldn't believe it. I've been I'd been sacked before I'd even started. So it was a pretty sad day for these guys. The other anyway, the other big guest was Stevie Wonder, who came on, sat next to Elton at the piano uh, at the piano stool for an incredibly indulgent 14 minute rendition of bite your lip yeah he puts in some vocals it sounds like he needs a lot of encouragement to get going but he plays a bit of piano and he puts in some vocals let's have a listen
1: get up
2: began another phase for Elton in fact he had a big booking coming up in November of 1977 here he is in that interview from earlier on talking with some real excitement about the new directions that his music was going to take um, let's listen
0: I'm very excited about what's going to happen but I don't know what's going to happen if you know what I mean I'm recording this weekend with Tom Bell who is a brilliant oh, I know, I know, black know, musician Tom. and produces a spinners and this will be entirely different for me. I won't be playing piano, I'll just be standing up and singing. And he's written four of the six songs that we're going to... Well, he hasn't written, he's, he's found four of the six songs that we're going to do. And only, only two of them have been written by myself uh, and Bernie Taupin.
2: So It just seems that being part of a massive touring outfit wasn't a part of how Elton saw his future at that time. And it wasn't going to be that way again till 1980. Let's go out then with one more almost complete song from the Gold Diggers show. This is Rocket Man. It comes to us in wonderful fidelity, so that's why we're going to listen to all of it. It's uh, that's courtesy of the Laserdisc version of the very best of Elton John. This suggests to me that the whole show exists in this kind of fidelity, um, but will it ever see the light of day? Seems unlikely to me. Anyway, here's Rocket Man. Back in my bags last night to
1: five 0 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. And such a time. Touchdown brings me round right again gun to find Not the man that think I might know Oh, no, no, no Yeah, oh, I know, no, no. I'm a rocket man, rocket man, burning out his fuse off here Bars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. In fact, it's cold. No one there to breathe if you do and all the science I don't understand. It's just a job.